Awesome. Welcome to this week's call and episode of Planet Positive. Really excited to be here today in our virtual gathering featuring William Becker or Bill Becker. Welcome, welcome, Bill. Um, as you all know, Planet Positive is a global think tank, a venture capital advisory accelerator, and serving to address humanity's most pressing needs to create a symbiotic existence with nature. A little bit more about William Becker. Bill is the executive director of the presidential campaign, uh, Presidential Climate Action Project, a nonpartisan foundation funded initiative that has worked for the past 13 years with many US and international thought leaders to develop ideas for presidential leadership on climate change and America's transition to a clean energy economy. And so that is really exciting with these words. Welcome, Bill, and uh, take it away from here. Thank you, Julian. Uh, you can tell from that job description, I think that the past four years have not been very busy for me in regard to presidential policies. Uh, but we plugged along anyway uh, and helped out the Biden campaign and, and turned to Congress and the states. The states here, you may know, have picked up the ball for the federal government, which has done nothing now for four years. But we're hopeful. Um, and there's two things, I, this is a good transition, there's two things I want to talk to you about. Um, kind of briefly, a little bit on the election that's coming up here in 15 days. I imagine uh, that you might be curious about it, um, but we all are. Uh, so I'll give you a little bit of an update on that. Uh, and then the second thing I want to do is talk to you about um, a book I'm working on that has to do with our relationship, mankind's, humankind's relationship with nature, and uh, which I think is uh, atonal at the moment, um, through the lens of floods. So we'll get into that. And uh, I should uh, give you a caveat about my expertise because I could already see you're going to throw questions at me that I'm not qualified to answer. So let me, uh, let me fix that right away. I'm actually a journalist by training. Uh, I've been involved in the energy arena for 20 years, um, but I'm more an expert in community development, flood mitigation, and things that I'll describe later. Uh, but just by exposure, you know, I've gotten quite a bit of knowledge about renewables and efficiency, particularly not much about nuclear. So I'm very glad that Amanda's on the call. Uh, let me start with the election um, and interrupt me if you want, but um, I have in all my 54 years of being a voter in this country, never seen quite a mess like this. And I know this is supposed to be a positive call and a positive group, but uh, so I won't get too down and dirty, but um, we have a lot of things going on in this country that uh, I haven't seen before, including uh, a lot of fascination with uh, conspiracy theories like QAnon. Uh, a president who is just really uh, encouraging violence and division and all that kind of stuff. In fact, he seems to be working for Vladimir Putin. Um, so we don't know how the election is going to turn out. Uh, Biden is ahead in most of the states that count, not all of them uh, right now. Uh, but, you know, Clinton was ahead in, in 2016. So we're not taking anything for granted. Uh, but if Biden doesn't win, um, I think I really will retire and maybe move to one of your places uh, overseas. So I hope you think about that and think of where I might land. Uh, but I'm hopeful that Biden will win. Um, one of the things that's going on here is uh, we have a lot of armed groups roaming around. So there's a little fear that there's going to be a bit of violence. Some of them are racist groups. Some of them are white nationalists. Some of them are militants who would love to see the whole government topple. And uh, Trump has created an environment that has invited these people out of the shadows. Uh, so uh, you've probably seen some news reports about some of the demonstrations that have gone here, but there's a lot of people uh, worried that, uh, that things will get very, very tense and maybe a little bit of violence. So we'll see how that unfolds in the next few weeks. Uh, but the real conversation about the election will happen after it's over. 
And uh, that might be a few weeks after November 3rd because uh, uh, for a number of factors, uh, including uh, Trump uh, doing lawsuits to try to get to the Supreme Court to have them mediate the results. So exciting times. Um, let me turn to the book. Um, it's, uh, we were talking before, most of you were online. It's due to come out in the next month or so. Uh, it's called uh, Creeks, The Creeks Will Rise. And it has to do with uh, this relationship with nature through the lens of floods and thereby through the lens of climate change. Um, what we have here uh, in the, this country is three and a half million miles of river, uh, most of them not flowing freely. Uh, anything longer than 300 miles these days does not flow freely. Um, we have um, a flood control policy that really took shape in the 1930s when we had several major floods and Congress uh, directed the Army Corps of Engineers to go forth and make war with rivers, you know, to deploy their bulldozers and subdue the rivers of this country. And uh, we have a, a big legacy now. We have 90,000 dams and 30,000 miles of levees in this country. We've got more than 2,200 of these dams that would, uh, if they failed or even partially failed, would result in fatalities. Um, these, these dams and levees were designed for about 50 years of service and now they're approaching the age of 60. They were designed for 100 year floods and now we're getting 501,000 year events. So we're in a kind of a, a crisis that uh, at the highest level this country hasn't realized yet. And that is that we're gonna have more and more failures of these, uh, of these dams. And we've come to a decision point uh, whether we're gonna invest a whole lot of money to fix the ones that are deficient and to build new dams or to increase the capacity of the ones that are already there uh, and spend billions of dollars doing that or whether we're going to simply move people away from floods and give the rivers back to, uh, uh, back to the, or floodplains back to the rivers and uh, the coasts back to the ocean. Um, and there seems to be, the levees, by the way, I should tell you, are protecting about $1.3 trillion worth of property here. So there's a lot of buildup. And what we've seen over the years, and one of the reasons uh, we're thinking about alternatives, is that about 1960, Congress realized that despite all the money we'd spent, we're still laying out more and more money every year for, uh, for flood disasters and, and relief and recovery. And that's because when we've built dams, people have tended to move below them thinking they were safe. And so we've actually uh, increased the population that's in danger of flooding below and behind these structures. Uh, and they do occasionally fail. Uh, they can fail for lots of reasons, uh, human error, uh, even rodents burying into the earthen dams can cause them to fail. Um, in terms of the fiscal decision, uh, it would take about $45 billion to fix the, the uh, dams that we have in place now. And that's only to keep them at that 100 year floodplain or flood standard. And it would cost about $90 billion to fix the levees in this country to bring them up to speed. So it's, you know, it's a big, big uh, lift fiscally, especially after COVID when everybody's broke over here, the local governments, state governments and the federal government. Uh, but we have to make that decision. And um, uh, one of the things that people are talking about right now as an alternative is called um, managed retreats. Uh, not a lot of people here like to retreat, uh, so I think that's an unfortunate title, but the idea is, as I mentioned, to begin moving people out of flood zones, out of uh, flood plains. Um, and uh, we have a movement that's going, and I think gaining momentum, not only to use that strategy, uh, but also to use uh, ecosystem restoration especially those ecosystems that retired flooding in some way, like wetlands, like uh, reforesting watersheds and all that kind of thing. 
uh, we've got a number of projects going on around the country where the Army Corps of Engineers is actually destroying the structures they put in place, put in, uh, place 30 years ago and letting rivers go back to being rivers. So restoring the meander and a couple of major rivers in the United States. So it's, it's really kind of a, a, a new age in terms of flood control, although we aren't quite there yet. But the momentum is building uh, to help people get out of these disaster zones and to use nature uh, to, uh, you know, to restore nature's functions so that uh, rivers control their own floods naturally to an extent with meander and with wetlands and so on. Um, we've got on the ocean side, 95,500 miles of shoreline, ocean and Great Lakes shoreline here. And we have the same flooding problems there, not only from uh, extreme storms, but from extreme storm surges and from uh, uh, large precipitation events when these uh, weather systems stall over our towns. Uh, so there's a lot of flooding associated with coastal property too. And we've lost about uh, our coastal property about $6 billion worth of real estate value in the past several years because of sea level rise. We're having rainy day floods along the uh, Atlantic coast, especially in the Florida area where uh, they're getting uh, probably ankle tickling kind of floods uh, uh, even on sunny days. But what that's doing is eroding the value of the property there. Uh, and eventually Florida expects to be underwater uh, completely. Um, that sunny day flooding is happening all along the Atlantic seaboard, not just in Florida, but Florida is getting most of it. Uh, and it's being made worse by subsidence. A lot of our East Coast is subsiding because of water withdrawals, and in some cases oil withdrawals. So the land is going down, the ocean's going up, and it's not, not a good thing. Uh, I want to go back, I'm going to jump around a bit here because I'm disorganized, but um, I want to go back and tell you a story about a guy named Gilbert White who was around in the 1930s when Congress was deciding to deploy the Army Corps of Engineers. And White, who later turned out to be the, the Dean of Flood Mitigation in this country, he's dead now, uh, but really, really a distinguished guy, was a young congressional aide at that time. And he went to a national conference and he suggested it would be so much easier and so much safer simply to keep people from building in floodplains. He was actually called before Congress to answer for his un-American activities because controlling nature was the ethic of the time. And it's, uh, it's been our ethic ever since, although that's turning around. Um, let's see, what else do I wanna tell you? Also property I mentioned is losing value. We expect it to keep going up and really get to $80 billion worth of real estate uh, value lost along the coast if we continue on the course we're on. Um, Managed retreats. I told you I don't like that term very much. I would prefer relocation. And the way I got into this was back in, I just got out of Vietnam and I wanted to retreat to some place where I could put myself back together. And I ended up on a farm in Wisconsin, in rural Wisconsin. And I bought the local newspaper there uh, and uh, became the editor publisher in this 600 person town uh, that was located on a river called the Kickapoo. And it was named after an Indian tribe that inhabited that area a long time ago. And uh, Soldiers Grove had been flooded every 10 years with a major, major flood. And it now was really a deteriorated town. Uh, looked like it just had been beaten up. The buildings were, you know, sort of tilting and all that kind of stuff. And it was a, an economically depressed community. Corps of Engineers came and said they wanted to build a levee around Soldiers Grove. And uh, for a number of reasons that I won't go into, it didn't make sense. So um, I proposed that we move the town instead, spend the same amount of money and never have to go back to the federal government for flood relief. And the Corps didn't do those things in those days, so it dropped out. But we managed over the next eight years to move the town 
the higher ground and to build the first solar community, solar heating community, I should say, in the United States, which in Wisconsin, which is a cold state, uh, was an achievement. Uh, so that's how I got into this idea of, of moving people. And I've been uh, giving talks about it ever since, and there hasn't been a lot of receptivity until recently. But now we're seeing people asking for briefings on these kinds of projects. And we're seeing probably about two dozen of them pioneering relocation around the country, some on big scales and some on small, some in cities, some in small communities. Um, the long range vision that I have, and I think it's shared by a number of people, is to evacuate our seashore and develop a protected national seashore in the United States along the Pacific, the Gulf and the Atlantic oceans, uh, and just pull people back and uh, um, use natural means like the restoration of wetlands and, and uh, reefs and barrier islands to protect those coasts uh, in a natural way. And along the rivers do a very similar thing. Um, we are able now with the federal government to buy homeowners property, buy homes in the floodplain and help those people move out. But the condition for getting federal money to do that is that uh, the community has to knock the building down and then commit the land to a natural floodplain forevermore. So we're going to see more and more floodplain restoration in this country. Uh, and communities are allowed to make parks out of those, to put in trails and do all that kind of stuff so they have some economic value. Um, but that's moving in the right direction. The other thing about climate change that we're really not uh, prepared for is mass migrations. And you may have heard about this in, in Europe too. It's of course a worldwide problem. In fact, the estimate is that 1.2 billion people worldwide will be by mid-century displaced by uh, climate change. Uh, the people who look into these things uh, like to make a distinction between climate refugees uh, and climate migrants. And what I'm talking about are climate migrants by and large, people who leave areas that are hardly livable anymore. Uh, we're expecting here in the United States to have 13 million people move because of sea level rise, 160 million Americans to move because of excessive heat and poor water supplies, 4 million to move uh, because they uh, found that they need to move out of places that they consider unbearable, and 12 million from the Southern United States to the Northern and Western United States getting, uh, trying to flee heat and such. So we're looking forward, sort of looking forward um, to a, 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 one of the largest migrations of population in the United States ever, including the Dust Bowl and the migration of blacks from the South in the last century. Um, this means that we have to develop certain cities as climate havens, they're calling them, or climate oases. Um, the cities that are more north and not being affected by temperature change or inland and not being affected by floods, uh, develop them with low income housing. So there's environmental equity. And, uh, and the land to take on new populations, infill development if possible. Uh, but cities aren't, aren't doing this right now. And like I say, they're broke because of COVID. So they're not thinking about it much. And I'm hoping this book will help alert them a little bit that we've got this uh, movement coming. Um, and a lot of cities will be under pressure. On the other hand, there are cities that now are almost vacant and dead that might benefit from a new population and industries, which I hope would be renewable industries. Um, the second part of the book, and it's a two-parter, uh, the first part covers all that stuff. The second part, uh, I, I tried to speculate about what's at the root of this, this continuity with, with the environment or this dissonance with the environment. And um, I came up with two things, uh, there's probably many more, but one I call frontierism and the second is greed. Frontierism, I talk about the first impressions that uh, uh, the British had or, or the Europeans had when they came to the shores of North America as a place with unlimited resources, unlimited opportunity, 
uh, no rules uh, about how those resources were used. And that first impression, I think, is stuck all these years. I think we still have sort of a mythology of unlimited resources, including the atmosphere here. And we really don't get into husbanding or stewarding those, those uh, resources because we think there's no limit to them. Um, and the second thing, greed, is neoliberalism is, the, uh, is another word for it. And that is the idea that the only thing that counts as an organizing principle for society is profit. Nothing else counts. Uh, and there is really a large number of people and politicians in this country that believe that. Um, so that disregards any environmental impact or any resource conservation or any human uh, imp uh, benefits that the environment might bring us. Uh, and just gives it to the profit motive. So it's the second part of this book deals with that and tries to describe why it came about uh, and what its impacts are. Excuse me, I'm gonna take a drink here. Do any of you get dry mouth when you talk? I do two things, I get dry mouth and I stop breathing. So if I fall off my chair, I'll be back with you after I recover. Um, finally, I talk about eco-mindfulness. Oh, it's not funny. This is penultimately. I talk about eco-mindfulness. And I lay out a scenario where we go out into our yards, for example, and think if everything that was going on, every form of life made sounds, the cacophony that we hear. And walking, just, you know, understanding what the tree is doing, what the communication underground between roots is doing, what worms are doing, and just become mindful of all of the things that are going on around us, all the biology going on around us. And, and come, I hope, to a better awareness and appreciation for uh, the marvelous life, forms of life we have in the biosphere and uh, how we ought to take care of them because they take care of us. Um, finally, I uh, talk about uh, the Anthropocene and which as you guys know, uh, the geologists have based that idea of us being the dominant species on the planet on negatives. There's nothing positive in the list of things that they talk about. It's the, uh, the spread of radio, radioactive materials, it's the uh, plastics in the oceans, it's climate change. They go down a list of about the 12 uh, crimes that we've committed against the biosphere. Um, and I'm suggesting that the, uh, we spend the rest of the um, century fixing what we've broken and dedicate uh, the rest of the century to what I'm calling the biocene. Other people have said that too. Um, and get to the point, as Thomas Berry said, where uh, reconnecting the human species with the rest of the world is the great mission we have or should have in this century. So I'm hoping that we can uh, get to the Biocene while we're in the Anthropocene and even while we're moving into the Cybercene and not get too far divorced from nature uh, as we get further and further from it intellectually. So that's basically it. Those are the uh, arguments I make. Technology need not be divorced from nature. And we can continue to uh, develop better ways of life and health without uh, getting more and more distant from nature and taking it for granted. So that's about it. Um, that'll be coming out in January, I hope, and uh, I hope somebody reads it. Excellent. Thank you so much, Bill, for so many great starting points for a more interactive conversation today. We have, we have quite a few curious people in this group, so I'm sure there's going to be awesome questions. Um, I'm curious about, you know, um, I, I found this um, about you, the 100-day action plan to save the planet. Do you mind touching on the 100-day action plan just a little bit? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> I was at the Department of Energy here for 17 years, and uh, I decided to retire in 2007 when George Bush II was president because uh, I, I didn't enjoy being there. And uh, I negotiated a two-year sabbatical with the Department of Energy, where I was paid full salary uh, to do whatever I wanted for two years, and I gave them back my position in exchange. 
So what I did is organize seven conferences on sustainable development where we brought in thought leaders from around the country to try to get sustainability back on the agenda because it wasn't at that point under the Bush administration. And one of the ideas that came out of that was to develop a 100-day action plan for whoever was going to be president. We didn't know at that point it turned out to be Obama. Uh, and so I wrote a book about what, what could, a president could do in those 100 days to uh, begin addressing environmental issues and climate change in particular. Uh, and the publisher uh, in New York insisted that I call it the 100-day action plan to save the planet, which I thought would be the laughing stock of my peers uh, because it's just a little... Um, I'm not going to save the planet, you know, but um, they wanted to get that kind of title on it. So I'm embarrassed at the title, but the book was okay. And it still is good because nobody's done anything since then. Or what Obama did has been reversed. Yeah, thank you. We also have a question from Elise in the chat, and that is about regenerative agriculture and, you know, if, if or how the U.S. could become a champion uh, of regenerative agriculture. And Elise, if you, if you want to, feel free to unmute yourself and um, add a little bit of um, context to your question. Otherwise, if you can unmute yourself, um, yeah, Bill, what what do you think? Is is there a chance that you know we know that uh, you know solids, healthy solids, can absorb as much carbon as we emit every year? So, what's your take on regenerative agriculture in in the U.S.? Well, in in regard to uh, climate change, uh, there's a I was going to say. Uh, earlier, I think it was Joshua was talking about um, his agricultural operation. And there's a, uh, I was going to tell him, there's a pretty good sized movement here on soil sequestration um, and how to, how to do it and how to measure it and how to reward it. Uh, so Joshua, I can connect you with that group, a woman named Betsy, maybe perhaps you are already, but Betsy Taylor is the person who's heading it up. And it's really a marvelous network of scientists and people interested in carbon sequestration. Uh, there's also some interest in rotational grazing and things of that kind, um, and in ways to reduce methane emissions from farm animals. Um, I think that uh, soil sequestration in particular, but agriculture overall was sort of the forgotten opportunity in, in uh, Copenhagen. Uh, but I see more and more literature on that now. Um, and a number of farmers taking on uh, ways to keep their pastures restored and their grasslands healthy by rotating uh, grazing. And that's about my extent of knowledge of farming, except for the uh, cows I milked back in Soldiers Grove, Wisconsin. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and Elise can't unmute herself right now, but we, we can possibly come back to it. Or Joshua, if you want to chime in on, on that topic, um, you know, you're also walking, walking that walk. Yeah, no, I, from what I've learned, uh, I moved to Costa Rica not understanding how, how big a tool the food system was in recovering uh, this world. I was, I was really trying to figure out how to get completely, I don't, I didn't even know what I was going to do. You know, food production was in such bad shape in, in our world. So, um, but yeah, I, I've read uh, before that they think we could bring our numbers back down to 350 parts per million if we switch to organic agriculture. And I've seen in no time, not just what's going on above the soil, but what's going on underneath the soil when you do regenerative work and soil building. Um, I have more action in any one handful of soil underground than there is on the kilometer above it, the square kilometer above it. So um, you know, a lot of these things start to do these pay it forward actions once they start working. Um, soon enough, as we're being a part of this and helping other scientists understand this, how to quantify all these things so people can really understand how to invest in this, not just keep throwing money at like tree counts. Um, that'd be nice. Yeah, that uh, I, I found out as I investigated this, I was writing a paper for Betsy Taylor 
um, that that's an issue, how you count the uh, carbon that's being sequestered, because first of all, in any given plot of land, there are several different types of soils you're likely to find and they have different sequestration potential. And then you need to verify it somehow if someone's gonna pay you for it. And that gets a little expensive, especially if you're doing it in laboratories. And so it's not an easy lift, uh, but it's a real important lift. And that's uh, a company over here trying to sort it out. Yeah, Joshua, you also had another follow-up question on the dams. So, um... uh, well, I'm glad, I'm glad you're speaking about dams. That's one of my passions. Being from Oregon, um, the, the work they did back in the 30s has left uh, immense scars uh, on our, not just on the land, but on the cultures that were moved to make these, uh, to make these <clears throat> dams to begin with. But I live in Central America where they really brag on how we use, in Costa Rica at least, how we use dams primarily, and we're pretty proud of it. But uh, in the U.S., there's, uh, I've read about 30,000 dams under 10 feet tall, like irrigation, old irrigation systems, and that we could make a big dent in, in the problem right now going after these dams, not just thinking about like the Bonneville Dam or the Hoover Dam, because, you know, those, there's a lot to talk about with those and their production of energy and stuff. But when it comes to these 30,000 dams that are just out there for cattle or even old cattle operations, do you, do you have any approaches on how we might deal with that, how we might help remove those? Um, in the West, where I sit, uh, is especially problematic because of water shortages. Mm -hmm. um, and as you know, Joshua, the Colorado River, uh, there's a lot of diversion for irrigation. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of water laws that make no sense at all. If I am water conservative as a rancher in Colorado, I cannot take that surplus I don't use and let someone else use it, or I lose right. my water. So there's a lot of things that have to be sorted out around the sensitivity of water, and it's getting more sensitive all the time with climate change. Um, yeah, you're right. Of these 90,000 dams I talked about, you've got recreational dams, you have water storage, you have irrigation, uh, a bunch of different reasons uh, for building them. I think there's about 15 or 16,000 that really are primarily meant for flood control, although hydro dam, hydroelectric dams and others uh, do have a flood control feature. And as I mentioned, one of the problems is that even below dams that were not designed to protect people, people move in. Uh, and mm -hmm. The dam is really not at the standards it should be to protect protect their lives, but they assume the dam. I'm good, you know. So that's something we have to sort out here. Um, hey, I, have a, I have a quick positive question. Did you? I'm, I'm being from the West. It's a, it's an important issue. People don't really think about beavers. Um, the the importance of those kind of dams. Any any words on beavers in your book? And and I didn't cover beavers. Uh, I, I will add a chapter on beavers. <laughs> well, I'm just, just being in the West this year, it's been very interesting how pivotal those creatures were to yeah. the creation of our topsoil and those and those provision, those dams that come and go and help create those floodplains and help create the topsoil in our meadows. Yeah, I've been doing some study about lemmings lately, uh, which are not even remotely related to beavers, but uh, someday I'll talk to you about lemmings, so really interesting creatures. Great. Awesome. From uh, lemmings back to back to humans and you know climate-related relocation. So there's another question from Gopi, um, who said he was in the Netherlands and they had focused initiatives around reclaiming agriculture and livable land um, from Zuiderzee, which was um, a seam made about seven centuries ago. So they have those technologies, and the question is, is uh, do you have any thoughts about using those technologies to stay in place and re-engineer um, living ability on the coast or uh, is, is the relocation something that we will have to come to terms with? Yeah, we're going to have to come to terms with the relocation. And um, you'll have to tell me the technologies you're asking about again. Uh, 
but uh, it's a difficult process, relocation, just to get to that briefly, because people who live on rivers often are very proud of it and often proud of having survived floods. And there is a phenomenon I call floodplain amnesia, where for just a few minutes after a flood, people say, I can never go about this again. I want to get out of here. And then pretty soon, all they start remembering are how the community came together. And boy, these, everybody was great. This guy came down out of the hills with milk. Uh, this bachelor's mucking out the woman's, you know, this uh, old maid's house. Just wonderful sense of community often derives from disasters. So people stay in the floodplain and, uh, and they get proud of it. They call themselves river rats in the town that I was in and feel that they've, you know, nature has not conquered them. You know, they're going to stay there forever. Uh, so it's a sensitive thing. And then there's family homes and stuff. It's, it's a difficult psychological thing to encourage people to move and keep them positive about it because it takes a long time to do it and you have to keep their spirits up. Now, having not answered the question, tell me what, uh, what kind of technology we're talking about, Julia. So Gopi, yeah, go ahead. Uh, this is, yeah, this is uh, Gopi. I was, uh, when I was there, uh, they were essentially, the Zura Sea had, uh, was a sort of an inland sea that had been encroached on by the North Sea and it slowly expanded and taken up a large portion of uh, uh, the Netherlands area, and then now they they dammed it, they dammed the inlet, and then they're slowly reclaiming, and whole towns have been built on top of the Zuiderzee, salty water. But they were dredging, cleaning the soil, laying out farms and laying out uh, uh, townships and so on. And 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 as you know, uh, they're one of the uh, best agricultural agriculture producing nations in the world. So they're, they've been quite successful in this area, including desalting and so on. So I figure some of that tech, tech could be used on the coastal areas where we're gonna have more, not necessarily on the rivers, but on the coastal areas for desalting and damming and protecting and so on. Yeah, the closest thing I know of in that regard is how the Mississippi River uh, in its dams and levees uh, has restricted the amount of sediment that flows down to the uh, Gulf uh, in the area of Louisiana. And uh, those sediments used to create land. And some of that land, uh, like Barrier Islands, protected the coast from, from uh, storm surges and so on, or wave actions. Um, so there's some talk about restoring the ability of rivers, including the Mississippi, to make land. Now, this happens in inland rivers as well, inland locations. Uh, uh, the sediment deposit. So one of the things that the dams do, by the way, is hold that sediment so it cannot build land. They keep it back and it uh, sort of settles in the bottom of the lakes, the reservoirs created by the dams. And some of you may know that uh, uh, in the Grand Canyon, they've now taken to release water uh, from the, the big dam there every so often so that the river can, uh, the river can restore itself in the sense of land formations where canoeists can camp and there's habitat and so on. So um, that's turned into a problem that's being recognized here. A, a dam and a reservoir can uh, have, a, have less long life because of sedimentation, uh, you know, reducing the capacity of the, of the reservoir over time. So that's, uh, there's awareness of something like you're talking about in terms of land restoration and land formation. Uh, you know, um, it's not something I've been into, but uh, I know Louisiana is looking into it and acting on it. Yeah, I'm just thinking that the disruption of relocation of such a, I mean, most of our country's coastal mm. and they're all going to be affected and relocating all of them would be expensive, but more importantly, difficult on people. 
yeah. and lots of their culture really and how to allow enough ability for people to essentially accommodate uh, you know there's a town in the uh, a little village in the Philippines fully a hundred percent in the water so much that the people have evolved to be able to breathe underwater more than normal humans there was some genetic modification that they've evolved so I'm thinking that you know we would have to adjust in many ways to this to the climate reality and part of it may be being able to re-engineer our coast sites to be able to live there better and finding technologies for that of course that's what we've been doing here for quite a while with seawalls and abutments and all those kinds of things and um, I hear people talking about uh, about mixed uh, or hybrid arrangements where you mix ecosystem services that are beneficial like wetlands and marshlands and so on with structures that are carefully done, carefully maintained, uh, but you don't rely just on the hard uh, structure options. Yeah, this, this uh, relocation thing or migration is going to be very, very disruptive and have very big cultural impacts because so much of the world's population lives on oceans and depends on them for their livelihoods and our ocean people. Um, it's, it's going to be very disruptive and that's why we need to get on it pretty quick and try to plan it out and, and uh, be rational about it rather than, let it, than letting it be chaotic, which it will be unless we plan. Um, we're talking about massive movements of people. I don't know of any, and perhaps you do, any flood control measures you can take on the ocean that you might take on a river. I guess building up high elevated buildings is one on, on the shorelines. Um, but we have a number of measures that people legally can use here to remain in the floodplain, which is something that has to be changed. Uh, and uh, they have to do with hardening the buildings and all this kind of stuff. We're trying to get rid of those options uh, because they just obstruct the water flow and they are the kind of thing you need to remove from, uh, from floodplains so they can spread out and, and slow down the river. Um, I forgot to mention this, by the way, we have this perverse set of federal policies that encourage people to live in floodplains, rebuild in floodplains, and floodproof their homes in ways that I don't think work very well. Uh, so uh, one of the things we have to do is change the, uh, the federal policy that encourages the wrong behavior or the dangerous behavior. Yeah, thank you so much for going going into the topic of relocation a little bit more. Um, we have Max uh, Beaumont with us as well, and I know Max has a few questions. So Max, go ahead, chime in. I'm curious to know what you're, what you're asking for. Yeah, th thanks, Julian. Um, so yeah, first of all, William, thank you so much for um, the talk so far. Some really interesting concepts I'd never heard before, uh, such as bioscene and, and climate relocation, which are really sort of represent advanced thinking. So it's really interesting to see that, um, see those concepts uh, being thought about right now. Um, before I go into uh, the questions, um, actually a, a small comment on uh, on the one before, because I'm actually in Amsterdam right now, being in Holland for about 10 years. So one third of the landmass of Holland is reclaimed land, like literally one third. So these mm -hmm. guys have been doing this for like the last 200 years, I think even in like medieval times, when sort of towns were being uh, invaded um, as a form of defense, the, the townspeople would actually flood the plains around the town. That's how much control they had of the waterways, even back in, in medieval times. Um, so I think uh, Hollander actually, in terms of like water management has a lot to offer the world. Um, everything in Dubai and the Middle East, for example, was built by like um, uh, Dutch firms. So I think I think there's there's something to say for the, for their expertise there, but yeah. Um, so 
so Will, I was uh, just thinking, so I have a two-part question. So first of all, you said so far on an annual basis, about $6 billion worth of property or real estate is damaged each year due to flooding. Um, but that would go to like 80 billion in the future. Do you have like an idea of when that would be, like what rate this is getting worse? And the second part of the question uh, would be, well, as a former DOE employee, what's your take on, on Biden's environmental policy? Thanks. Thank you, Max. Um, yeah, the, uh, the, the idea of $80 billion is a, a, is a figure that'll never come to pass because people are not gonna allow themselves to uh, have their uh, capital investment in their buildings depreciate that much. Uh, not to mention the disasters that happened because of flood surges and, and rains and so on. So <clears throat> it's kind of a useless number, but it's if we continue with business as usual by mid-century, the speculation is we would have tens of billions of dollars of depreciation or lost value in real estate. It, like, we'll never get there. I can't imagine we get there. Uh, Biden, um, this is the first presidential election uh, in which climate change has been near the top of the priority list. Uh, We've done a lot of polls over time that I really think are kind of bogus because we've asked people to rank 18 things, 18 issues, economy, jobs, uh, and so on down the line, environment. Climate change has always been last in that ranking. And it's because the pollsters never explained to the people they were talking to that climate change impacts everything up the list all the way to number one. It has an impact on jobs and the environment and the economy and so on. So we have this way of separating things and putting them in bubbles or, or uh, silos when they shouldn't be separated to really have an honest understanding of the issues. Anyway, despite that kind of uh, flaw, uh, climate change is now one of the top two or three issues um, in this campaign, which everybody's delighted to see. And as you probably saw, uh, we had 23 presidential candidates on the Democrat side. Every one of them had a climate plan of one kind or another. Uh, some satisfied the progressives, others did not, but everyone had a plan. Biden's plan was, um, was a little bit on the weak side compared to some of them. Um, Jay Inslee, who's one of the people up there you may be uh, uh, aware of, is a governor who really took the lead on climate change in his state. And it, climate change was pretty much a single issue when he uh, threw his hat in the ring for the presidency this year. Uh, but he put together a plan that's really comprehensive. And the other candidates, several of them adopted it, just embraced it, plagiarized it. And Biden did that to a certain extent. His climate plan now, which you can find online, is a lot more aggressive than his original plan. He had uh, two of the progressives, well, he had John Kerry and a woman named AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's a famous up-and-coming Democrat uh, here from New York, uh, who's a very, very much a progressive and was pushing for, um, for the Green New Deal. In fact, she was one of the authors of it. Uh, Biden had uh, John Kerry and her lead a task force to try to take some of the more progressive ideas and marry them with Biden's. Uh, so Biden is kind of walking a line between the, uh, the moderate Democrats and the progress, so-called progressive Democrats who want to be really, really heading towards socialism uh, or whatever they understand socialism to be. In other words, a much more aggressive federal government on all fronts, including energy and climate change. So it's, it's, uh, I think it's a respectable plan. And it's one of, uh, gee, probably a dozen different areas where Biden's laid out very detailed proposals beyond climate change and environment on social equity, transportation, housing, and so on. So I think he's done a good job. He's going to have a difficult time because there's so much to repair when he gets there.
a lot of his time is going to be fixing what uh, Trump has done in terms of rescinding regulations, environmental protections, and so on, um, and rebuilding morale and putting scientists back in the federal government. He's going to have his hands full uh, besides all the normal duties of a president. So I think uh, people like me are going to be a little impatient, you know, hoping he gets right on to climate change right away. Oh, he's, obviously, he's got to save our economy and cure COVID. COVID. So um, it's going to be a while before he gets to climate change. And uh, he's going to come under a lot of pressure. But um, I think Kamala Harris is going to help him out a lot on that. She's a very bright, bright person. Anyway, so we have to keep our fingers crossed. We don't know how, how fast it will get to it. Just small last on Biden's spot there. So yeah, so that's really that's really interesting. Th thanks for that. And um, yeah, no, it's 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 good to hear. And, and by the way, just one last follow up question: Do you think he'll rejoin the Paris Agreement, or do you think that's? Uh, he will rejoin the Paris Agreement if it's Biden. If it's Trump, we will not. But uh, Biden uh, is top of his list. Okay, as okay. it should be. I think that would mean a lot to like a lot of Europeans. Uh, mean a lot to us too. Thank you, Max. Thank you, Max. Thank you, thank you, Bill, for the answers as well. We have another question from Planet Positive partner Ellen. Um, Ellen is, is asking, "How do you feel about implementing payment for ecosystem services to incentivize climate positive actions?" I feel that's a really good thing to do. We were talking about that in reference to soil carbon sequestration. Um, a lot of the ecosystem services have uh, economic value. A lot of them are sensible things to do anyway. You shouldn't have to require an economic incentive to do them. They're in your interest to do. Uh, but I think in terms of in, in inspiring people, let's say, to, uh, to make habitats for pollinators, many more than we have right now, and, uh, and to uh, conserve those habitats or to uh, conserve uh, uh, forest lands in this country, um, those kinds of things, those big ticket, big uh, result kind of projects, I think, do deserve economic incentives. I think one of the things we need to do is educate people about ecosystem services. I don't think they understand what we've lost as we've destroyed a lot of these ecosystems or what we have to gain by restoring them and taking care of them. Um, so I think the first job is to educate people about the benefits uh, of those services, um, regardless of whether there's a financial incentive, just to their safety in terms of wetlands and floods uh, and, and much else. Um, aesthetic beauty, uh, getting rid of the urban heat island with tree plantings in urban areas, just all kinds of things. Awesome. Yeah, we have a few more questions. Um, and if, if any of you have more questions, feel free to write them in the chat. I'm also curious um, about this one that, that George just shared and um, maybe, well, possibly they, they go together. So I'll share them both and then we'll, you'll see how you can answer them. So Brandon shared, um, when do we shift the conversations from asking whether people believe in climate change to declaring it's a full on climate emergency, right? Like if you look at um, California burning or Siberia burning or the Amazon burning. Um, obviously earthquakes have just happened the last few days in Alaska. But then maybe I'll, I'll read the second question right as a, as a kind of an addition because, you know, this is the planet positive circle. So the question really is beyond government and what's broken, what would be the ideal action step right now if there wasn't a broken system underneath it? Um, that allows for addressing the totality of climate change or a great pollution, maybe maybe a less triggering word. Um, yeah, what would be that ideal pathway of action in, in, in your perspective? Yeah, I can start with that one. Um, the, the economists here think that carbon pricing is the key. 
uh, and that it would solve a whole lot of problems all at once if people were actually paying the real cost or something close to the real cost of fossil fuels. Unfortunately, uh, our Congress hasn't done anything uh, really since 1992, if you believe it, um, anything substantive on climate change. And they've pondered uh, both a cap and trade system and a carbon tax, uh, but neither one has ever made it to the floor. Uh, well, I should say um, cap and trade did a, a couple of years ago. It was passed by the House, defeated by the Senate or ignored by the Senate. So Congress has not done anything affirmative in terms of carbon pricing, but the economists seem to think that's, that's if you had to pick one thing to do, that would be it. Now, I think uh, in the absence of congressional action, regulation is what we need to do. Um, the neoconservatives don't like that, but they've had their chance, it seems to me, to price carbon and, and fix this. So I think we need to restore EPA's ability to uh, do what uh, Obama called the Clean Power Plan. And for the first time, begin to restrict emissions from power plants, carbon emissions from power plants and vehicles. So um, I think that's, if I were Biden uh, and I had a chance to advise him on this, which I hope I will, I would suggest that he restore EPA's regulatory power. If ever we get a market mechanism in place like carbon pricing, we can back up on the regula regulation a bit uh, and let markets do their jobs. But so far, we haven't put those market me mechanisms in place. Now, the first question, remind me. Well, it's really about the, the, the larger narrative and changing the conversation from climate change into, you know, um, climate emergency. I think those are the words that Brandon used. Yeah, sorry, I got it. Um, first, I really chafe at the idea of believing in climate change because it's not a matter of faith. It's a matter of science. And uh, so I discourage people from using that word. Um, what's happening here, I, first of all, I've always been confident that the United States would do the right thing, like Churchill said, and eventually get to some climate solutions because the weather is gonna get worse and worse. The impacts will get worse and worse until people cannot deny it anymore. The question has always been, I mean, it'll be a political imperative to deal with it. The question has always been whether we'll do that in time, whether it'll be too late by the time that kind of political will develops. But the good news is that we're seeing the polls show that uh, really uh, significant growth in, in the number of people who are concerned about climate change. We're up in the 60% to. 65% realm uh, with the big partisan gap. Most of that is Democrats. Republicans are still pretty uh, you know, undecided. Um, but we see the public attitudes changing. And uh, that's one of the reasons we had climate change at the top of the presidential agendas this year. Uh, so I'm hopeful. And it's the weather that's doing that. And more and more people are realizing that they, uh, their friends or families or they themselves may be in jeopardy from these forest fires. Uh, uh, and the floods and the uh, hurricanes on the uh, East Coast. So the weather is, you know, is uh, wearing out that resistance, I think, and that denial. Um, there's a hardcore that, that will never change their mind and we don't care about that. They can do what they do. Uh, the rest of us will get on with it um, and they'll benefit from it, I guess. So I'm, I'm hopeful that public opinion is changing right now. The question has always been, is it gonna be fast enough? Yeah, there, there's a few more questions and I'm gonna pass it to our founder, Peter Crane. I know Peter, you, you're curious, you've, you've, you've held your questions back so far. So um, there you go. Uh, thank you, Julian. Yeah, Bill, given your background in energy and now um, in uh, the, the flooding crisis that we face, uh, and you know, one thing that's always recurring and, and deeply resonating with me is how you point out that humans think that we can engineer our way around nature and it seems to backfire just about every time. Um, so yeah, I'm just really grateful and blessed that you're bringing this to the forefront of people's consciousness. And then there's people working hard to um, bring us back in harmony with nature. 
uh, with regenerative farming and other measures. And along those lines, with your background in energy, have you ever looked um, into the uh, area of biomass to energy and specifically how that can tie into preventing flooding by growing it in the right areas like certain species such as elephant grass, for example? I'm curious if you have any thoughts around that. I think you just expressed it. Yes, uh, we should be growing those. They, they do help revegetate floodplains and watersheds. Uh, some of those are energy uh, feedstocks uh, that could be very, very useful. Bioenergy has always been a little bit troublesome here because of the uh, carbon involved in producing the crops uh, mm -hmm. and processing the crops. So, you know, we're one of the schemes I heard a long time ago was uh, uh, trying to remember what the term was, but making sure that you were uh, sequestering as much carbon in the vegetation as you were uh, producing when you, uh, when you cultivated it and so on, when you grew it. Uh, I think that's possible to do that. Closed loop biomass, that was the term. I think that's possible where we should be headed. Um, it's also possible to use wind and solar in some of the processing of biomass materials so that you're not using fossil fuels. Um, it has to be a big part of what we do. And, uh, and I love to see farmers be able to earn incomes by making bio, uh, energy feedstocks in their crops, as well as uh, using non-food crops for uh, substitutes for plastics and things like that. Yeah, that's that, thank you so much for that. And that you raise a very interesting point that maybe you have a quick answer to, maybe not. Uh, some of the projects I've looked at, they were saying that they've really uh, minimized the, the uh, carbon footprint around creating energy from biomass by um, processing it basically on site, like processing it into fuel where they grow it. Do you think that mitigates the um, impact uh, sufficiently or is, does more need to be done um, to mitigate that? Well, that eliminates the uh, transportation impact. Uh, of course, they're gonna have to move the fuel once it's processed. Um, it doesn't mitigate the uh, cultivation or fertilizer or whatever. It depends on what kind of crop it is. Now, if it's animal waste or if it's urban wastes, uh, that are biological, that'll be a different different story. Um, but it depends on uh, farm equipment being converted to alternative clean fuels, um, uh, the transportation system being converted that way as well. Now, one of the things that um, I like to say is that I think solar and wind and the various renewable clean energy technologies have the same obligation to clean up their acts as fossil fuels do. So that might mean the caustics and things that are used in the production of uh, silicon cells. It could be the plastics used in, in producing uh, wind turbine blades, but we it could be the rare earth minerals used in so many, so many of the things we use. But we need to go through the whole value chain and make sure it's not a devalue chain, uh, that all the way along we're attending to the environmental consequences and the economic and social consequences of what we're doing. Uh, and that, uh, I, I can't think of a technology that shouldn't go through that kind of introspection and have a program to try to green the whole process. Um, so uh, once again, if you look at the whole value chain, uh, those fuels need to be not only processed, but moved to the point of use. Um, uh, in some cases, there'll be waste materials that need to be dealt with. So we have to do a holistic uh, look at the genesis and the disposal of the, all the way from birth to death of these technologies or products. Uh, and uh, I think it really that's a whole brand new area for R&D, maybe not brand new, but a very, very high potential area for R&D to get into is cleaning up the whole process of, of the really beneficial products and fuels that we use. Yeah, yeah, but we, we uh, had a presentation recently from uh, Bloom 
David Bloom, and uh, he's doing the full cycle with the farming, and then he's turning the farm waste into alcohol fuel, and it's completely closed loop. Yeah, and, and then the generator, you know, they they put that into the greenhouses instead of releasing that into the air, and that that lets the plants breathe. So it's really it's really amazing stuff. Yeah. You go all the way back to Schumacher, and there's always had the Holder's catalog, and there's all these things that we could have done then that we should do now. There's just so many possibilities. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that that very uh, detailed answer. I appreciate it. Thank you for the question, Peter. Sure. So we're approaching the top of the hour here. We have two more questions. I uh, hope we have time for that. And um, there's, there's Joe with a question and Amanda with a question. So I'll pass it to Joe first. Joe, go ahead. Hi, Bill. Really good to see you. Uh, when we first met, oh, it's almost 15 years ago, on the eve of the COP conference in Denmark, where we were providing a, um, a vehicle for people with alternative uh, views on climate change in London, um, we had some heart-to-heart -heart conversations where you were feeling very dissolute about the world and and people really not listening to all the things you've been talking about for 20 years and there were deaf years. Are you feeling more positive now? Do you feel things have changed? Do you think there is hope? Or are you still feeling a bit dissolute? Well, Joy, I have mixed feelings. Uh, if I look at it sort of empirically, I, I'm positive about it for the reasons I said, that the weather's going to force action eventually. Uh, I think there's, you know, you don't need that many people to change the world. And I think we've got them uh, if they are empowered. Uh, so in that respect, I feel pretty good. I see some really good, good, good people in, in this movement, uh, politically and otherwise. Um, but the other, uh, the other side of the coin is that I'm 74 years old and uh, tried to build something of a legacy and would hate to see it flop or degenerate or, or not succeed before I go. Uh, and I'll tell you a story. Um, I got, had the pleasure of meeting Mikhail Gorbachev a couple of times, served on his International Climate Change Committee and stuff. But this is a fellow who uh, does not get the credit he deserves for the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Reagan over here gets all that credit and he doesn't deserve it. But it's Gorbachev who took the risks and he's dedicated his life to nuclear arms control. And uh, if in February, uh, we don't renew the SALT II agreement, we will be without nuclear arms control for the first time in 50 years in this world. Uh, and the weapons have proliferated a whole lot since Gorbachev was cutting deals with, with the various US presidents. Um, here is a guy who's in his late 80s now. Uh, I, I just feel so bad for him because of what's going on in terms of nuclear or lack of nuclear arms control and the proliferation thing and the saber rattling that's going on between Putin and, and uh, Trump right now. So, uh, you know, he's a fellow who uh, is in danger of seeing his legacy disappear. And uh, it's a hell of a legacy. So I hate to see that happen. Anyway. That's the flip side. Will it happen? Well, I can still see it. So if there's any one action that you think needs to be done, what, what is the one thing that we should be focusing on? I know we're talking about systems and there's lots of multi-actions, but is there one thing that would make just a huge difference? In terms of climate change, I mentioned carbon pricing. In terms of awareness and our place in the biosphere, uh, it's, it's taking that walk I talked about. It's somehow... Uh, giving people an education and a personal experience into the value of nature. And the fact that as one mentor told me once, uh, we have to be people with our feet in the ground and our heads in the sky. We need to stretch that far. And uh, we can go to Mars, but let's not lose contact with the earth uh, and, and all it gives us. So I, if we can change people's consciousness as well as their intellectual understanding of our relationship with nature and what it should be, 
Uh, that is the most important thing, I think. And it's not easy to do, but um, I think we've got more and more evidence that we need to do that because uh, we're getting negative feedback from the environment. Thank you, Joe, for the questions and thank you, Bill, for the answers. Thanks everyone for being patient. We're going a little bit over time, but um, we'll have time for Amanda's question. Um, Amanda, you want to ask it yourself? Sure, mine is, I'll just make it really fast. I'll sum it up. It was about the forest three issues. And I know that the forest serve, the forests in the United States are challenged in part because of many decades of policies that haven't served the forest well. And at the Forest Service and the national and, and the state parks, what if you if you had, could, could come up with one policy either on a national level, probably harder to implement, maybe implementable on a state level that could help uh, mitigate or reverse or, or or dial back this terrifying trend of, of fires um, in different states, what would it be on a policy level? Yeah, um, I don't know that much about forest management, but sustainable forest management that takes into account um, nature's way of managing a forest, uh, you know, in terms of uh, managed fires, I guess, and uh, those kinds of things to uh, do what nature would do when we're preventing nature from doing it. You know, I can't be much more, Amanda, I'm sorry, much more specific than that. Uh, an interesting sidebar is that uh, Trump, of course, has been blaming California for not sweeping the floors of the forest and having all this combustible material on the floors of the forest. And it turns out that uh, all the land that's burning is federal land, not state land. So he should be sweeping it anyway. And he won't. So <laughs> you tell me, what should we, what do you think we should be doing? What is the one thing? What do I, in forests? I, I, I think that, I, I, honestly, I don't know the answer, but I believe that it's probably not a very PC answer. It may not even be a regenerative answer, but um, my family has a ranch in New Mexico. And I know that the forest, we have forest fire problems all around us all the time. Um, not all the time, but I mean, it's, it's, it's a common occurrence. Forests that have been logged tend to do better than forests that haven't been logged. And then, and then, so, and that's, I don't, I mean, I'm not a forest expert. I kind of asked the question because I live or my family lives with, uh, with the challenge around us. And I know that we have the Arizona and California fires affecting the air quality in New Mexico. I'm London based, but logging um, practices have definitely helped in the past. Um, fires tend to serve a purpose as long as they're contained because the, the, the land does come to life again. We have forests where half a mountain was taken out by a forest and now those forests are green again. So in some ways, some of these fires seem to be doing nature doing what nature needs to do. But I know that mismanagement of forests on a, on a policy level uh, and the divides around us between state park and national forest service, they kind of share land, you have Forest Service, then you have part of it that's the park. It, 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 it's all kind of oddly divided up. I just don't know. It's, it's not my area of expertise, but it is something that I care about and something that I look at. And I know it's a multi, multi-decade policy issue on, on some level, non-partition, but there must be something that, and I suspect on a national level, it'd be really hard, but on a, on a domestic, on a state legislation level. I mean, me, even something I could go back to people in New Mexico and say, hey, what do you think? 
I mean, we're ranchers, so we have conversations with um, government, not about that, but I could, I could find a pair of ears. <laughs> I have heard about sustainable forest management. I'm not an expert either, but it, curiously, uh, I thought it was curious, Barack Obama was uh, advocating wood products, promoting the idea of wood products as a, a more permanent way to sequester tree carbon or wood carbon. Um, and I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, we built a mountain cabin a few years ago. And at that point, the pine bark beetles had decimated the, the uh, forest in Colorado, uh, the pine forest. And um, yeah, we, we have, yeah. It, yeah, it happened all over the West and up into Canada and so on, I understand. In any case, uh, a lot of businesses developed around salvaging those trees and turning them into some of the most beautiful wood I've ever seen. And the state gave a discount for people who bought it uh, for their for their homes for making their homes, so um, there was that. And I guess we've sequestered it and kept it from rot those trees from rotting away, releasing their carbon. But yeah, um, we need those forests, obviously, and we need to manage them correctly. And I've heard the same thing you mentioned, and that is that logging can be a beneficial exercise. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm, happy. I'm happy we agree on that. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know much more. Anyway, thank you so much. I don't. I, I'm talkative and I don't want to talk more than, than I than I should, but thank you so much for your time and very interesting. You're welcome. And I enjoyed you can talk to me anytime. I loved it. So good pleasure. Thank you so much everyone for your questions. I know Peter you had a closing remark. We're quite a bit over time. I'm I'm grateful that all of you are still here. There's probably more questions. Um, so Bill, maybe there's a way to stay in touch with you for people. If you feel like sharing your email address, maybe share it in the chat. Um, and Peter, I'll pass it to you for a closing remark. Uh, are you still with us? Can you, can you turn your camera back on? And maybe Peter had to take off to the next thing. He, uh, he had to run to the dentist today. So um, well, on that note, I'll... I'll um, is there any last question that, that somebody else has? Shane, you unmuted yourself? Yeah, yeah. I'd just like to make a point, just a quick one to finish with. I think uh, anything we're doing that, that comes in contact with land or, or nature, we really need to look at indigenous and, and ask indigenous uh, people for, for their wisdom, because at the end of the day, these people uh, carry traditions from, from thousands and thousands of years uh, through, and they've dealt with all the things we're talking about. And I think it's almost irresponsible for us to have a conversation uh, without including the indigenous wisdom. So I just wanted to add that. Absolutely right. You should, uh, one of the things I did in writing this book is study the cultural impact that climate change is having on the indigenous people here and in Alaska, but in the continental United States as well. And it's just devastating. Uh, in fact, warmer waters in Alaska are allowing some, some uh, fungus, I guess, uh, to grow in clams, which are one of the main food sources for the native Alaskans. And one clam will kill you with this fungus. In because of the oceans getting warmer. Uh, one thing I want to say, I'm sorry, uh, is that I have collected all the policy ideas that I know of in this country on our website. So if you want to see the best ideas that have emerged in this past year in the United States, please go there. Awesome. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much, Shane, for bringing this up. That's definitely the, the, one of the missing links in the chain is to you know, practice the humility and understand that there's, there's more than the Western way of thinking and solving problems. Bill, thank you so much for your time, for your insights, for your wisdom, uh, for the depth of knowledge. And um, yeah, thank you everyone for being part of Planet Positive today. Thank you as well. Good to talk to all of you, thanks. Thank you everyone. Thanks guys. Have a great, Have a great week. week. Thank, thank you. you.
That's all. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. I hope you truly enjoyed this one. You took some insights away, something you can apply for your own life or something you want to share with a friend. If you truly enjoy Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, the episodes I make and the guests and interview partners I feature, make sure to subscribe, leave a review on the podcast on your favorite app on Spotify or Apple podcast, share it with a friend. And if you feel inspired, make sure to support this podcast. There are plenty of ways to get in touch with me, leave a monthly recurring financial support on anchor.fm or simply in the show notes of this episode, wherever you're tuning into. This podcast is really just about to get started featuring, showcasing and gathering some of the most badass planetary change makers that are making this the regenerative decade on planet earth. Wherever you are in the world, have yourself a stellar day.